It's wonderful to be back with you, and things do change, but what doesn't change is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in a lot of ways, I'm coming to repeat what I did five years ago, and that is to preach Christ to you. So I'd like to pray again, if I could, before I preach. So would you join me as we pray? Well, Father in heaven, what a gift to be back here. And I thank you as the giver of every good and perfect gift. Thank you for the privilege, the grace, the mercy you've given me to be back among these dear saints, opening your word. And I beg of you, O oh God, to use me to cause your living and active word. I don't make it living, it is living. I pray that you would use this time to cause your living and active word to be honored among us. That your living word would come alive on our hearts in such a way that what happens in this room is worship. Anything less, Lord, would not be honoring to you. So I pray that you would continue what you've begun under Pastor Jeff's leadership just minutes ago in leading us into worship. Through song, we've worshiped you through the table, and now we come to the pulpit. And would you give the increase, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. If I was to ask you, I have an idea of what you might say, but if you were to, to survey the landscape of the evangelical church today, and I asked you, does God rest consequentially upon the church? What would you say? I'm convinced that He doesn't, generally speaking. Uh, and I want Him to, I think you want Him to. So if I got a little closer and I got a little more personal and I asked you, at Cape Bible, does God rest consequentially among you? Is there a weight to His glory here such that God is the most important reality here? He is the most important reality in the universe. Is He the most important reality here? Does He rest consequentially upon Cape Bible? One of my literary mentors, I've never met the man, but he wrote a very important book uh, some time ago that is still very relevant today. This was back in 1994. David Wells wrote God in the Wasteland, and he had uh, an idea of what was the great problem of the evangelical church. And here's what he says about this problem. He says, quote, The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music, and those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches, calls those things scratches, will do nothing to stanch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. And so if you're reading Wells, you're saying, well, what are the true wounds? If we're treating a bunch of scratches, maybe making scratches the main thing, what's the great wound that is ailing the evangelical church? And he says this, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, His grace is too ordinary, His judgment too benign, His gospel too easy, and His Christ too common. End quote. There is a weightlessness to God in our day that threatens to destroy churches. Do you believe that? I train my students in wanting them to be on guard for this weightless God 
that is all over evangelicalism, if we're honest. As we look out on the party tricks and the vaudeville acts that are going on in evangelicalism, it doesn't take a PhD to say that God is not resting consequentially upon, upon the church. And so this weightlessness of God that threatens to destroy the church, well, why would that destroy the church, a weightless God? Because when God rests too lightly on us, sin goes unchecked, division creeps in, false teaching crops up, the Spirit is quenched, and the beauty of Christ is marred. All of this leads to the abandonment of the gospel. And once the gospel is gone, you no longer have a church. You take the gospel out of this place, and what do you have? A nice building with a lot of nice people, but no Christ and therefore no gospel. Well, our text this morning, we're going to get there. <laughs> Wondering, is he going to get to the text? I will get to the text. I'm at a Bible church, right? <laughs> so we're going to get to the text. Our text this morning aims like every text in the Bible, right? But this text seems to me, in particular, aims to make God rest very consequentially among us. And I want Him to in the next 30, 40 minutes. I want Him to rest very consequentially among us. For in our text today, we see great grace and great fear. We're going to see both. And really, i got two points to my sermon this morning. Great grace and great fear. And both... The grace of God and the fear of God bring God to rest very consequentially upon the church. So I want us to behold the great grace of God in this text, and I want us to behold the great fear that came upon the church in this text this morning. So if you're not there already, would you turn to Acts chapter 4? Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32 and we'll make our way through chapter 5, verse 11. And just as you're turning there, part of the prayerful excuse I have for going to this passage, I was doing a little bit of research on your website, and I've noticed that uh, most of the preachers, and I could be wrong, have been in epistles. They're mixed in some, some Ecclesiastes and the Psalms. I saw that too, but heavy on the epistles. So I just figured you need a good narrative this morning. You need, you need a different genre. So I'm bringing you a story this morning. And, and for all of you, just to remind you, these are true stories. This is nonfiction this morning. So please stay engaged with this story by the inspired author Luke, who's telling nothing but the truth. This is a true story of great grace and great fear. So let's take each one in turn. First, great grace. I want you to behold it. I want you to see it. I want you to love the grace of God and see what it does when it is great among us. We could start at verse 33 because where do I get it? Where do I get great, great grace? Where do I see it? Verse 33 of chapter 4 of Acts. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There it is. That's where I get this first point. Great grace was upon them all. And my question is, what was the evidence of this great grace, this great favor of God on the church? For to read this story, what, what, what did, the, did the great grace of God do among a people? Well, I've got a few things I want to highlight. First, they were united. Do you see this here in verse 32? 
Drop down to verse 32 and we can see how united they were. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Isn't that a beautiful thing? They were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, it might be some time since you've been in the book of Acts, so just to give you the quick context, approximately 20,000 people were in the church at this time. God's been moving that powerfully since Pentecost to grow His church, the people of God. We've got about 20,000 people in the church at this time. And when Luke says that they were of one heart and soul, he is highlighting their genuine friendship and unity of purpose. Genuine friendship and unity of purpose. They were determined to support one another in living lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the image that came to my mind as I prepared was a a crew team, right? Pulling together in unison toward a common goal. And what's that goal in the early church? Well, the glory of God and the advance of the gospel through them. That was the great purpose. That should be our great purpose. Genuine friendship, pulling side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the great purpose of our communion. That's the great purpose of our gathering, whether it's on Sunday or any day during the week. That's why you're a member at a local church, to pull side by side with other brothers and sisters that you love with the love of Christ toward a common purpose that is the glory of God in the advance of the gospel among us and among the nations. That's why you exist here at Cape Bible. Well, that's the first thing I see as a result of the great grace that was among them. But there's another thing I see as a result of the grace of God. They witnessed with boldness. Do you see it here in verse 33? Go back to verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So with great power, with great boldness, with great eagerness... They were proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. So they had a message. They had a sermon. And that sermon was Jesus Christ, Him crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, certainly coming again for sinners. Right? That's why they preached. That's their message. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So led by the apostles, this was a witnessing church. And don't you love it? What a beautiful picture of the great grace of God Unity of purpose and now a boldness in witness. In the power of the Holy Spirit, the early church testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was their message for the world. One more. Result of the great grace of God that was among this people. They cared deeply for each other's needs. You see that there. They cared so deeply for one another's needs. Needs, needs, such that no one was needy among them. Isn't that incredible? No one had a need. Look at verses 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them. Now just stop there and let that sink in. No one was needy. Can you imagine a place like that? Maybe that's this place. I don't know. But nobody said, I have need, I have material need that's not being met. You know why? Because the church was taking care of one another. Let's keep reading. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them 
and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each, here it is, as any had need. Same phrase used in Acts 2, 45, so earlier in this book. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, here it is, as any had need. Same phrase, seeing it, see it in Acts 2, and now again in Acts 4. This is what was happening as a result of the grace of God, the great grace of God among this people. They were selling their stuff. Isn't that counter-American? It's incredible. They're just selling everything because people have needs. You have a need, I got a car. Okay, I'm going to go sell it. And you get the proceeds. You got a need, I got land. I'm going to sell that land, give you some of the proceeds. So what? You don't have need anymore. People were just on the lookout for need and they got stuff. So rather than build a bigger barn and house that stuff, they liquidate it. Don't you love that? Liquidating for the glory of God and the good of people. That was happening right here in the book of Acts. As any had need. Now not just with words, but with deeds. The church testified to the power of the gospel. Their love for one another was so great and practical that it even reached their wallets. That's how practical their love was. I note two things. I want to be clear here because I'm visiting and I don't want to send the wrong message here. Know two things about our text. Number one, this was not coerced or forced by the leadership. Do you see that? I want to be clear about this. This selling of lands, this selling of stuff so they could give away the money. They're bringing stuff, laying it at the apostles' feet, the proceeds. This was not coerced or forced by the leadership. People voluntarily sold their possessions. That's a very important point, isn't it? No one was coerced. No one was forced. This wasn't a new policy. This wasn't part of the, the bylaws of the early church. You will sell a certain amount of land at a certain point or whatever. This was done voluntarily. Second thing I want you to see, to be clear about, this was not an attempt to make everyone have equal amounts. Do you see that in the text? So I'm not, I'm not forcing this on the text because I don't, I don't want everybody to have to have equal amounts. So no, but that's just what's here. The proceeds were distributed to all, remember, as any had need. So it wasn't equal distribution. It was need-based distribution. This was love aimed at alleviating burden, not creating a quality of wealth. Okay? That's a little parenthesis. I just want to be clear about that. Now let me apply this. Great grace. Great grace among God's people. The great grace of God, the great favor of God. We could say it a lot of ways. The smile of God was on this people. And the question for us is, do we exhibit the marks of God's great grace upon us? Do you, Cape Bible, exhibit, demonstrate, show to the world the evidences of God's great grace among you? So by the grace of God, be united in purpose, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. By the grace of God, be bold in witness, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. By the grace of God, care deeply for the welfare of one another, working faithfully to ensure that the needs among us are met. I feel somewhat like the Apostle Paul. I don't have an apostolic complex, I'm just saying this comes to mind when Paul noted all the love and faith among the Thessalonians. Do you remember this? But he exhorted them 
excel still more in this, right? So I know enough about you to say, this is happening here, right? You're united, right? You're loving one another practically. You're bold in your witness, but excel still more. Do any of us do that enough? Are we united enough? Are we bold enough? Are we loving enough? Of course not. So while today's still called today, excel still more in these evidences of God's great grace among you. Well, that's the first point. I went a little quickly through that because I'm very eager to get to great fear. And you think, why would I want to emphasize great fear? Because like great grace, great fear will cause God to rest very consequentially among us. And I'm jealous for that for you. You invited me here. What else would I give you but God? What else would I give you if I truly loved you and was thankful to be here but a consequential God? That's what you need. That's what I need. So glad I'm a preacher because I got to hang out in this all week. Right? <laughs> you did. I got to live in this text all week and I beg of God to make it fruitful among us now. Here we come to great fear. Now, to make way for great fear, which is what I want to do, notice with me how chapter 4 ends. Notice how chapter 4 ends with an example of the incredible generosity that marked the early church by a man named Barnabas. You've got to come to love Barnabas. Joseph, and they called him Barnabas, though, and I'll read this in a moment. Uh, look at verse 36. Read it right now, actually. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Isn't that great? You're such an encourager that you get your name changed. And that's what happened with Joseph. You're such an encourager. We're just going to call you Barnabas, right? Son of encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. It belonged to him. It was his. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is making way for great fear. And you think, well, how's this making way for great fear? For us to behold the, the sincere generosity of this great encouragement to the church, Barnabas. Well, not everyone in the fellowship was like Barnabas. This is an intentional contrast set up by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we would see genuine love, genuine generosity, great encouragement against the backdrop of great hypocrisy, great deceit, great lying. Not everyone in the fellowship was like Barnabas. Luke contrasts the sincere love of Barnabas with the hypocritical deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. This is a chilling story of how God struck dead two people for not telling the truth. And this outpouring of the holy wrath of God, I'm praying, will cause great fear to come among us as a people, as it did in our text. So let's come now to Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 1. I want to read these 11 verses. Let's get the story out. Spoiler alert. I'm just going to read it. You're going to see the end, and then we're going to linger over it. But a man named Ananias, you see the contrast, but, so unlike Joseph, unlike Barnabas, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back. That's an important word. We translate kept back. I'll come back to that. For himself, some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. This show of religion, do you see it happening? But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal, Ananias? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. This should take our breath away. What God did to a liar. What God did to a hypocrite what God did to one who was deceitful. Let's keep reading. He has a wife, remember? After an interval of about three hours, what happened during those three hours among the people? Were they just, I mean, beside themselves, going, what just happened? Ananias, who we all know just breathed his last. He just dropped in front of Peter and died. And they carried him out and buried him. What a three hours. Didn't see that coming today. So at the end of this three hours, his wife came in, presumably to the congregation, right? Not knowing what had happened, so she's oblivious to the death of her husband. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much, that you is plural, so you and your husband, did you, did you too sell it for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. Oh, Sapphira, why did you do that? But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband. First she heard of it who have buried your husband, are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Here it is. Where do I get great fear? And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Earlier, we were just in great grace, right? We were just in great grace. And now we're in great fear. And we can see why. But let me just try to live where I think some of you might be living right now as you read this, as you see it. You may be tempted to feel sorry for Ananias and Sapphira, right? When you read this in the English text, because you think, what? Gosh, it seems harsh. I feel bad for this married couple. They sold some land and kept some of the proceeds for themselves. Now, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with this, right? You sold land, you kept some of the money, but you brought some of it to the church and you laid it at the apostles' feet. Seems kind of harmless enough on the surface, right? This couple was under no obligation to sell their property. Remember, we've established that. There was no church-wide mandate to sell your property. No one was being coerced. No one was being forced. So they were, people were doing this freely, 
no constraint. And if they did, that is, sell their property, they didn't have to give all the proceeds to the church. They could give some. They could give none. They could give it all. They were under no obligation to give all the proceeds to the church. Peter acknowledges both of, both of these points, doesn't he? You see it in verse 4 of chapter 5. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Ananias, this was your property. It was yours. It's a rhetorical question, right? Of course it was your own. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal, Ananias? Right? It was. Again, another rhetorical question. You know this, Ananias. It was yours to do with it what you will. So why does Peter, given that, why does Peter accuse Ananias of being possessed by the devil and lying to God? That's a harsh accusation, right? He, in essence, says you're possessed by the devil and you're lying to God. Not merely to man, but to God. Why does he level this accusation, such a severe accusation against Ananias and, of course, by extension, his wife. Peter said, and you saw it there, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, until now in the book of Acts, because you know this book, we've seen people being filled with the fruit of the Spirit. It's been a, a glorious triumph of the gospel. People being filled with the Holy Spirit and then preaching with boldness, seeing unity grow up, people come to faith. It's been an incredible filling of the Holy Spirit in people such that godly fruit has been pouring out. But now, a different point in the overall narrative of Acts, right, until... Now we see Satan filling a man's heart with deceit and hypocrisy. Very different than the filling we had seen up until this point. And we know this is what's going on because of the verb. I told you we'd come back to this. The verb translated kept back in verses 2 and 3. Kept back. This is an awful word, kept back in this context. To put aside for oneself in deceit and dishonest ways. That's what this word means. To put aside for oneself in deceitful and dishonest ways. Same word used in Titus 2.10 where it, it, in the context it's speaking of stealing or pilfering. So that's what's going on here. We know this because of the word used. There's stealing or pilfering going on. Ananias and Sapphira had told the church one thing, but did another. See, this is when it becomes deceitful, hypocritical. They had told the church one thing, but did another. It's the same word used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the story of Achan in Joshua 7. You remember that story? He did some pilfering. He did some keeping back of things for himself, right? And then he buried that treasure in his tent, and he and his family and even his livestock died for it. Because Achan tried to present himself as one thing before God and the church, but was really another, a lying hypocrite. Also, this is a reminder, of course, 
of the sin of the garden where another married couple broke faith with God and took or kept for themselves something they should not have, right? And Satan was very active in that narrative as well. So this harkens back to the original sin in the garden of hypocrisy, of stealing through disobedience. Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to deceive the church. But in doing so, Peter makes it clear that they didn't just lie to him and the church. That would have been bad enough, right? But Peter's saying, it's not about me. And every pastor should think this way too. I mean, ultimately, if you lie to the church or to a pastor, that's not your ultimate offense, right? Peter takes it Godward, as we should all of our sin, right? It is ultimately an offense, a rebellion against God, as it is in this case. This is what makes the sin so grievous and resulting in death. Now, that's the story. That's out before us. We can see it. And even now, it might be causing a sense of great fear among us. This is the God we worship, who poured out great grace, and now, as a result of His holy wrath, great fear is among the people of God. Let me highlight three truths that we must not miss from this story. Because I just retold the story. I walked through it with you, and you can see it plain enough. But let me try to draw out for you three truths from this story that we cannot miss as the people of God. We must not miss as the people of God. Number one, sin is deadly serious. Sin is deadly serious. No games here this morning. No games in the Christian life. God is not playing. He really is holy. He really is the one that Habakkuk says has eyes too pure to look on sin. Our God is a consuming fire. You're in 1 John. God is light. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. And we're so good in evangelicalism at domesticating God as He's just one of us. And he makes mistakes too. We'd never say that. But we don't see him in the burning bush of Exodus 3 like Moses did. Get those sandals off. Do you know this ground is holy? Don't come near or you will be consumed. I am God and there is no other. Therefore, sin is deadly Serious. Brothers, sisters, our sin is what put Jesus on the cross, right? We come to the table. It's our sin that caused him to hang there. Peter, who's in our narrative, will write about this later, right? He'll write two epistles. In 1 Peter 2, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you are healed, Christian. It's our sin that put Him there on the cross so that we would now live for righteousness, dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
So all sin is serious. But the sin of Ananias and Sapphira seems to be particularly grievous. Right? Because after all, their sin is what brought the holy wrath of God to end their lives right there in front of the church. Ananias and Sapphira made a promise to the Holy Spirit, to God, and broke that promise while still trying to appear as though they kept it. How wicked is that? They were mocking the Holy Spirit, in essence treating as profane the one who is holy. So let's be clear about that. That's how grievous this sin is. All sin's grievous. But here they were treating as profane the one who is utterly holy. They wanted to be seen as the big givers in the church. They wanted the applause of man. Maybe even wanted a, a chair at the table of leadership. So they wanted to be seen as these big, generous givers. They want to be outdone by Barnabas. Someone call me a son of encouragement. Come on, look at what I'm doing. I'm giving big time here. They wanted to be seen as the big givers, as the super spiritual in the church, but without actually following through on their vow. There's a word for this, and I've said it several times, but what's the word for this? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And Jesus hates hypocrisy. You know this. Know it still more. He hates hypocrisy. After all, it's our Lord who said in Matthew 15, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Do you hear, do you feel the affection Jesus has against hypocrites? In vain do they worship me. It's all lip service. Oh, their lips are moving during the singing. Their lips might even be moving during the preaching. Their lips, it's all lip service though. There's nothing in their hearts that's warm toward God. It's hypocrisy. And hypocrisy sings sometimes. It's awful that hypocrisy can sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Amen, amen. Jesus later in Matthew's Gospel is recorded as saying this, and oh, He is vigorous against the scribes and the Pharisees whom He saw in the main as hypocrites, vain worshipers. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Any Pharisees among us? Any scribes among us? God help us. Were Ananias and Sapphira true believers? Let's come back now. 
Were Ananias and Sapphira true believers? I mean, that's, that's a fair question, right? It's a good question. We are not told anything in this text about their eternal condition. And preoccupation with that question, I do think, misses the mark. It's not the question to ask. The question to be asking right now is, am I a hypocrite? You should be asking that of yourself right now in the pew. Forget Ananias and Sapphira in a sense. It's not ultimately about them. This word is about us, preacher and listener included. Are we real? Or are we hypocrites? One commentator asks the right questions and I think helps us with an answer. He says, I quote, Were, the, were these believers who fell into very great sin... Ananias and Sapphira? Were they believers who fell into very great sin? Did God remove them to save the church from their influence and to save them from the hardening that repetitious sin can induce? It's a possibility. Fair question. He goes on, or as seems more likely, were they hypocrites through and through? I I lean that way. I tend to think, I, I don't know. I don't know on the authority of God's word if they were saved or not. I tend to think they were hypocrites from the beginning. They went out from us. I got to listen to Ben preach a fine message. They went out from us because they were never of us. Because if they were of us, they would have remained among us. But as it were, they left, giving evidence to the fact that they were never truly born again. Does Ananias and Sapphira fit that category? Perhaps. Let me continue with this quote. Whatever the answer, the hypocrisy of their actions betrayed a disease best removed quickly, lest it infect the rest of the church. The two burials that took place that day were something the church can never forget. God hates hypocrisy. The death of Ananias and Sapphira was a lesson that God will not tolerate phony Christians, and sooner or later, their end will be terrible. End quote. So, brothers and sisters, I'm not reading this narrative as normative. <laughs> as if every hypocrite in this church right now is going to drop dead. That's what God does with hypocrites, right? Always, without exception. Praise be to God that He doesn't do that every time someone engages in this grievous sin. He's so merciful. Praise be to God for His mercy. But it happened. Okay, so I'm not going to walk it back. It happened. God's holy wrath was poured out on Ananias and Sapphira. Let that land. That's the first thing we learn from this story. Sin is deadly serious because God is holy, right? You see it here. Second thing I want us to see from this text is that Satan is viciously active. He's viciously active. Do you see here? Satan hates God and his church. One of his tactics is to convince us that he doesn't exist, but he does exist. Peter himself will write later in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's a takeaway from this. Satan is active, and he's prowling around looking for someone to devour probably even now. So James says in chapter 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So let us be on guard. 
Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the devil and his cohorts who are working overtime to destroy Christ's church. One more takeaway from great fear that was among the people. God is majestic in holiness. Okay, we've, we've seen it. Let me just highlight it now still more. God is majestic in holiness. Friends, there is a weight to God, a weight. You know what I mean by that? A weight to God, His holiness, that signifies everything about God that sets Him apart from us, making Him worthy of awe, adoration, and dread. That is a godly fear or deep reverence. Ananias and Sapphira, notice this. No time to repent, no counseling, no hand-holding, no waiting to see if they had godly sorrow for their sin, just instant death by the judgment of God. And what does that tell us? God is majestic in holiness. We don't go beyond that, but that's what it tells us. At least that, God is majestic in holiness. And because God is holy, His church will be holy. It will be. His people will be a reflection, not of the world, but of Christ. That's what His church will be. Therefore, therefore, our life together ought to be a chorus that sings, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of Your glory, with lives that give picture to this reality. One thing happening in the culture that I'm very grateful for So rather than it concern me, I'm actually very grateful for the end of cultural Christianity. Aren't you? It's crumbling right before our eyes, and that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. I mean, I teach and preach and pastor back in the Bible Belt. I don't know if that would be considered here as well. And it's happening in Louisville, Kentucky, right? In Kentucky, cultural Christianity is crumbling, right before our very eyes. And I love it. Do you love it? It's happening here. People no longer are going to church or claiming the name of Christ because of some kind of cultural pressure or some kind of cultural equity that you will get by being a Christian or a member of the local church. Actually, people aren't even neutral to it. It might work against you now. We're back. There was a day Or if you were an elder at a church, you were somehow seen as maybe a better businessman, a better businesswoman, a better person in the community because you had a a church life. Now, hate speech, bigot, certainly a racist, right? If you're one of those Christians, LGBTQ community, can't stand what we're about in terms of traditional marriage, two genders. You got three, I got two. So there's no capital to be gained by being a cultural Christian. And that's a good thing because God is holy. And he wants his church to be pure. That is, let our love be sincere, Paul says in Romans 12. Sincere for God and sincere toward each other. So, friends, I close. The greatest need of the church in America today is for God to rest very consequentially among us. Does He? Does He? Because when God rests too lightly on us, sin goes unchecked. 
Division creeps in. False teaching crops up. And the spirit is quenched while the beauty of Christ is marred. All of this leads to the abandonment of the gospel. And once the gospel is gone, you no longer have a church. May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear the one with whom we must give account. You know this. I must remind you of this. There's coming a day of Christ. That's what Paul calls in Philippians 1.6. The day of Christ. All human history is moving toward a day. Jesus gets a day. And it's that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. So there's a holy one, and we're going to give an account to him, but friends, let me end with gospel. The holy one who comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's the holy one, the one who comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ and, and today offers salvation to hypocrites, offers salvation to deceivers, offers salvation to rebels, Right? that are rebelling against God constantly, He offers amnesty. Today, while today's still called today, He says, be saved. Have sins forgiven. Have God for you, not against you. In me, the Christ. Jesus, the Holy One, comes to us. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And do you know what the risen Christ says to us? Right now, this morning, into the afternoon, right? What does he say to us? Things like, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says things like, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You'll have the light of life for you, forever, not against you. Or one more, this risen Christ says, something like this to you this morning. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light today. There's coming a day when it won't be easy and it won't be light, but it is today. So in other words, friends, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And your life will be a trophy of grace as you live in the weight of glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in this place. Make us a people that live to hallow your name in the glory of salvation, in our union with Christ, sins forgiven, life everlasting, now standing forth to a watching world as a trophy of your grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace greater than all our sin, so that your utter holiness doesn't have to be against us but can now be for us forever. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.